Hi to all, it's uh, Danny Kwiat here, and uh, you're listening to the Beyond the Grid F1 podcast. Hello friends, and welcome to another edition of Beyond the Grid. It's Tom Clarkson here, and as you heard at the top of the show, this week we've got a revealing conversation with Alpha Tauri's Russian rocket, Daniel Kafiat, coming your way. Before that, though, I do hope you're all keeping fit and well and managing to stay positive in these difficult times. Hopefully it won't be too long before we're all racing again. But in the meantime, we have an hour of escapism coming your way. Now, under normal circumstances, Danny Kafiat would be about to celebrate his 100th Grand Prix. But there's way more to this guy than mere numbers. He's a driver I've always admired because he's a bit different. He runs much deeper than many of his rivals and he has a mental resilience to match the best something you need if you're a part of the Red Bull Young Driver program, as he'll explain. Of course, Danny's always been quick, as his three podium finishes will attest. Just two more corners to go here at the Hungaro ring. It is for Danny Kvyat, a first ever podium in Formula One. Congratulations to him. Well done, Danny. You know what a uh, podium means, so uh, great job today. He stacked up well against John Eric Verne in his debut season at Toro Rosso, and he then outscored Daniel Ricciardo when they were teammates at Red Bull Racing in 2015. Yet he was out, demoted back to Toro Rosso after just four races of 2016 in order to make way for Max Verstappen. After, of course, those famous torpedo moments in China and Russia. Over the next hour or so, we'll talk it all through, including that redemptive podium in Germany last year, his sabbatical as a Ferrari development driver, his thoughts on Red Bull advisor Helmut Marko, and even a little bit of classic literature. Yes, you did hear that right. Given the current conditions, we were talking remotely, Danny in his bright Monaco apartment, me in the less luxurious surroundings of my kitchen. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Danny, it's lovely to have you on the show. Thanks for your time. We're having to do this remotely, of course, via Zoom. Hello, and where are you? <laughs> <laughs> Hi. So I'm in Monaco right now, and uh, just... Uh... Yeah, I guess a bit uh, limited with my movements like everyone else right now. Well, what is it like in Monaco at the minute? Are you even allowed out or, or what's the... It's quite strict, I was hearing. Yes, you know, luckily it's, it's always been more or less allowed to be outside, close to your home. Uh, but uh, you still are allowed to go running uh, by yourself, of course, without any groups. Still, it is like this now and uh, it's a big help because in some countries I heard you can't really do it. So... It helps massively because just to be locked down in your apartment all the time, it's, it wouldn't be fun. And uh, like this, I try to do morning runs every morning to see a bit of sun. Weather, luckily or unluckily, has been great all the time, actually. And so it also helps. And uh, But other movements, of course, are very strict. What about your sort of Formula One training? Yes, you're running, but are you able to do any weights, swimming or? Yeah, well, swimming, you know, is not allowed. Uh, I would like to. Especially the sea looks uh, very inviting right now. Uh, it's warmer and warmer every day here. But uh, ordered a lot of weights, a lot of uh, elastic bands and uh, able to do that. And it helps a lot. To be honest, and running still can do plenty. Try to run sometimes a bit more than uh, maybe what's allowed. But still, uh, it's important to keep in shape, you know, especially here in Monaco is quite calm. So those kind of things. Uh, to be honest, it's actually a good uh, way of training. A lot of time spending training, a lot of time for, for this. 
things which we never really have time for and now i feel like actually really fit every, in everything so it's it's uh, it's quite cool in a way now what about a new skill a lot of people are saying to me i'm using the lockdown to learn a new skill have you managed to do anything yeah well i i got an electric guitar which uh, i never really touched until the uh, lockdown i knew how to play a bit of classic guitar and uh, so i tried to practice as much as I could now, electric guitar, and it's uh, it's quite cool. It's a lot of fun, and uh, you know there are many YouTube videos, YouTube tutorials to teach you some new stuff, and uh, I'm really enjoying it. Some new songs, you know, I like a bit of heavy metal, ACDC, Metallica, and stuff like that. But uh, try to keep the volume down because of my neighbors, of course. So I was just gonna say, how are you getting on with the neighbors at the minute? <laughs> no, well, I, I actually I messaged them and I said, look, guys, I, I got an electric guitar here and amp and uh if it's too loud just just text me and let me know but i try never to play after 11 p.m of course and not start at six in the morning you know yeah and uh, so it's okay they said look during the day honestly you can do whatever you want just uh, no problem so i actually can quite free with that how much are you missing driving uh quite uh quite a bit to be honest uh of course not being able to do it not even karting you know not even something like that because normally if there is a big break in the winter i can always go karting uh, not far away from monaco with a with a friend of mine and uh have some fun but right now really all i'm left with is a small simulator and uh, you know it's not uh it doesn't really feel like uh, reality so i try to learn like new tracks and uh, just have some fun learned uh, the long version of nurburgring in the beginning of, of the lockdown now I, I'm quite uh, familiar with the track. It was not easy to learn every corner on that circuit. You know, there are so many corners. I think there's 175 or something. So you've never driven the Nordschleife in reality, only on the sim. I never drove, but uh, with uh, my father once, we went uh, with his car. He was driving because I was too little uh, still to drive a, a normal road car. And we just did one touristic lap, you know, and it was just, I can't remember, of course, any corner just from one lap. And until then, I never really touched it. And then I just said, okay, let's try to learn something new. Now that you have time and now I can do maybe three or four laps in a row within like half a second. And it's, it feels quite nice. It's very extreme track. God, that's amazing. If you can do them within half a second, crikey. Um, Nick Heidfeld, back in the days when he was at BMW Sauber, did three laps of the Nordschleife in a Formula One car. And he said it was amazing. They weren't on proper race tyres. So he said he couldn't completely go you know flat out but he said it was amazing yeah i mean with f1 i don't know there is this couple of really banking corners i don't know you would have to really compromise the right height a lot there for sure because the track also must be quite bumpy and uh, for that reason i think it must be quite tough an f1 car but i bet he had a lot of fun now under normal circumstances you would have been celebrating your 100th grand prix this month it's mad, yeah, isn't it? I know. I know. Yeah, I was looking forward to that actually. You've already done a hundred Grand Prix. Well, you haven't, but you should have already done a hundred Grand Prix. It's amazing. Yeah, I know. I know. I was looking forward to it actually. It's a nice number, and you know, regardless, it's already quite uh, something. You know, to realize that you've been for a while in the in the business, and uh, it's cool. I just can't wait to start uh, racing again to reach that number. A hundred Grand Prix. That's more than. Jackie Stewart, that's more than Jim Clark, that's more than Sterling Moss, more than Juan Manuel Fangio. I think you're a veteran. Yeah, but at that time they had less races, of course, also per year, but still. It's uh, like I said, it's it's interesting, but one 
number of races is one thing. You always want to, you know, win some uh, races, some championships. It would be perfect uh, like that. But yeah, I was thinking about it before the season starts that it's, uh, I might be reaching 100 races this year. And it was, uh, in a way, a good feeling. How has experience changed you as a driver and you as a person? Well, you know, looking back at it, like I started joining F1 in 2013. And, uh, of course, was very young back then. And uh, it's just a natural process, really. You know, you just go race by race, test by test, and uh, you just grow. In a way, it's automatic process, but also it's what you make out of every experience. It's important to analyze things deep enough, not too deep, in my opinion, and, uh, and get better every time, you know. Every year, there is something new. Every year, you're able to, you know, you work with a new car, new engineers. There is new tires, new chassis, new aero maps and stuff like that. And you always need to figure out what's the best for you, for the car. You always need to try and, uh, and always stay in, on top of your game, you know. Does anything about Formula One surprise you now? Uh, it's hard to surprise me now with anything, I think. <laughs> so I've seen enough, not enough, but I've seen quite a lot in, uh, in F1 these years. Uh, it's an interesting... Uh, sport slash business and uh, it's a very competitive uh, environment and uh, it's uh, yeah interesting surprised now no i wouldn't say so now i would can say i'm ready for for any kind of scenario so when you've been a member of the red bull young driver program for ages as you know as you i think you've been a member since you were 15 back in 2010 and because you don't have to worry about funding your racing career or even choosing the team because i'm assuming that's what helmut marco was doing for you in a funny kind of way did that mean that you were less prepared for the politics and the business side of formula one than if you'd had to fight your own corner on the way up uh no it's not uh, as it looks to be honest we always uh, first of all uh, you know helmut uh, or dr marco like you call him do you still he, uh, call him Dr. Always, Marco? No, no, no. You call him. I said Dr. Marco. I call him Helmut. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and because uh, one day he just told me, okay, I said, uh, hi, Dr. Marco. And he said to me, okay, just Helmut for you now. So, uh, <laughs> and uh, he always gave us a choice, actually. He always spoke with us, even if we are teenagers. And um, at that time, he still always asked my opinion. He said, look, uh, you have this choice and this choice for next year. Uh, what do you think? What do you feel ready for? And once, you know, he asked me, uh, I think it was before Formula Renault, a Euro Cup, he said, look, uh, this is a very tough championship, but you also have an option to do not so tough championship if you want. And I said, no, I want to do the toughest championship uh, there is, you know, and he let me. So I always negotiated myself with him and uh, with Red Bull uh, when I was, since I'm 15 years old and also in all the karting teams. I always did it uh, mainly myself, of course, consulting, uh, maybe sometimes uh, my father because, uh, he was also involved in my karting career, but the final call, they always let me do that. Do you think Helmut's testing you, though, when he says to you something like, you can do an easy championship or a harder championship? Is there actually only one answer to that question and he's testing you? Or do you think if you'd said to him, now let's go and win the easy championship, he would have actually let you do that? Uh, maybe yes, maybe no. No, it's very hard to know what's on his mind. He's an interesting character, you know, quite unique and uh, quite tough. I think he would let me do it, but he would expect me to win it, you know, without any competition. And if I wouldn't, then uh, probably I would be out in that case. So, 
but I always wanted the toughest uh, competition and uh, always wanted, you know, to go to move forward. And I remember once, you know, he told me I would have to repeat uh, another year in Formula Renault. Like I was a bit upset because I wanted to move up to Formula 3. But uh, he said, look, it's going to be best for your confidence if you win more races. And he was right, you know, even though I always wanted to do more, I always wanted to do as much as possible. You know, sometimes you need to consolidate your experience. You said he's a tough character. How much pressure did he apply on you on the way up? I mean, were there sort of threats? If you don't achieve X, we won't be supporting you next year. Did that sort of hang over your head? Uh, not just next year. Sometimes he would call me and say, look, if next race you don't improve, uh, you're out. <laughs> that was uh, the kind of uh, calls I was getting uh, when I was 15. How, more or less, how, my how first do you year. deal with that, for goodness sake? Uh, I just had to let go. I just had to adapt. And that's what makes me better now compared to before let's say it's important yeah i remember those uh, still clear in my head that he would call me and say look it's not good you need to improve man it's not good and he just puts the phone down and then you're left with yourself and then i improved in the next race a lot and uh, he said okay keep going so and like this was pretty much all the career you know um, it becomes normal for you it becomes a normality after some point in the beginning, it's a bit of a shock, you know, when you are 15 and someone tells you, we will fire you. <laughs> uh, but then it becomes normality. And do you think he was like that with everybody on the Young Driver program? Jean-Éric Verne, Carlos Sainz, Daniel Ricciardo. Did everybody get the same tough treatment? I think so. Uh, I think no one. I think every, if you ask every guy, uh, everyone would have some similar story to tell you. I'm not sure Carlos has, but... Uh, or maybe he does as well. I don't know. You know, you should ask them. For sure, everyone would have an interesting story to tell you. Have you got some kind of voodoo doll where you're just sticking pins into him every day or something? I don't know. It wouldn't work, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but, but for all of the pressure and that side of it, I mean, it's fair to say that you owe your career to Helmut Marco as well, right? There's a lot of positivity as well. Of course, no, I'm, when I talk about this pressure and things, it's not like it's, I'm talking in a negative way. I actually talk about it in a positive way. I think what he gave to me, to us, but I'll talk for myself in this interview from now on. What he gave me, of course, is uh, resilience, uh, mental resilience and uh, the pressure resilience that is one of the top levels, you know, it's important. And it was always fair in a way uh, uh, in, in junior categories, you know, to give chance and uh, you, sp you sponsor someone's career. Uh, you want them to win. And it's normal. Uh, I see it that way. Let's not forget that Helmut was a he was a darn good racing driver as well back in the day. He did what? He did a handful of Grand Prix. He was brilliant in sports cars. Did he ever sort of take you to one side and actually try and tell you how to drive the car as well? Or, or was it all sort of bigger picture stuff? No, car really, no. He never, he always knew he, that's another like fair play to him. He always talks with engineers first. And if there is an obvious problem that you may be experiencing with some, let's say tire warm up or tire usage, he would, yeah, tell you, look, this seems like it's your main problem. So try to work on this uh, next few tests, next few races, and uh, improve that. Uh, but he never actually tells you, like, okay, you need to take this curb here or break uh, 10 meters later. No, he knows exactly what his job is, and he knows exactly what the engineer's job is. So that's another thing that, uh, that he, he's good at. Now, look, can I take you back to early autumn 2017 and... It all comes to an abrupt end, doesn't it? Yeah, shit times. I'm so, I'm so sorry to remind you of it, but there's a positive question I want to ask you about this. I mean, well, first of all, how did he break the news and how surprised were you by what happened? Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, thank you for reminding me, especially now in the <laughs> <Sorry>. lockdown times. <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, it's good to talk about it as well. I mean, honestly, it was a tough period uh, ever since 2016. You know, it was a very difficult uh, year and a half for me. And um, no, well, I, I lost the place, I think, uh, for Malaysia and then called me again for one race in Austin. I was sure at the time if I tried to do a good, as good job as I can that race, I could have a chance at least until the end of the season, you know, to try and prove it. And it was a good weekend, you know, many things have uh, have improved and uh, I felt comfortable again. And the car at that point was really struggling, to be honest, uh, but I managed to bring it in the points and the pace looked good again. And uh, after the race, you know, I was scheduled a meeting with Helmut and uh, yeah, he just told me, look, unfortunately it doesn't work. And uh, yeah, that's it. Simple as that. So we we shook our hands and uh, I was very tense the whole weekend. But to be honest, when I left the room, I was relieved in a way because uh, it was uh, not easy times. Did you expect ever to be welcomed back into the Red Bull fold after that race? Uh, no, no way. No, I thought. But honestly, our goodbye was uh, in a way very normal. There was no like uh, no hard feelings. I never tried to pinpoint anything. And him as well. It's just two, you know, part, business partners. Uh, it's the way you want to see it. They just uh, stop the collaboration, you know. Obviously, I never said anything uh, bad in the media after that, of course. Uh, no, I didn't think about uh, that return would be ever possible there. But life sometimes can be very interesting. Well, so here's the positive question. I'm going to put it to you, Danny, that your year at Ferrari, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but your year at Ferrari was a, a real life-enhancing experience for you and you've come back a, a better driver. Is that fair comment? Yeah, I think it's fair comment, yeah. I, I felt like I needed a break after those uh, a bit not-so-easy times and um, it was very, very important, very, very nice in a way to be able to spend some time home, uh, to just do the training to clear your head, not just for, you know, getting ready for championship, to do sometimes nothing and still, you know, uh, think about things uh, well. And uh, I had still a very job that I enjoyed in a way, it was um, a development driver for Ferrari. And I like, you know, Italian teams very much. Ferrari, you know, is, is a huge, has a huge history. And also it was great, you know, I would take a car here from Monaco, drive maybe for four hours, more or less, put my favorite music on, arrive there, do my job, uh, enjoy some talk with the guys and uh, yeah I felt like uh, I meant something to them you know like uh, it wasn't the job that I wanted but I felt uh, that I was giving the result to the team I was helping to develop the car and uh, they they felt it you know they felt that I was doing my best for them and it felt uh, very satisfying to do that job in a way uh, even though I wanted to drive so much uh, especially around uh, May June when I had my rest when I charged my batteries again I was like man i just want to drive I, I now i'm really i was starting to struggle because i wanted to come back what were you actually doing for ferrari you were on the sim but were you the guy who over a grand prix weekend would work overnight to help the guys at the track was that the job or was it something else yeah it was that i would do thursday friday of the race weekend try all the you know requests from the track whatever we need to try and then uh, after friday meetings i would uh, try to listen to to the comment of the guys from the track and try to look uh, other things uh, deeper to improve the car and uh, if necessary to talk uh, directly there with the people and uh, 
yeah, it was good because, uh, you know, people were listening to me and I attended a couple of races actually also there. It was, it was good. Uh, it was good to be on the track also with them. Of course, when you're on the track and you can't race, that was also not, not an easy one. How do you rate your time in Maranello? Did you enjoy the town? Did you get a buzz out of working for Ferrari just because it's Ferrari? Yeah, I enjoyed it. I mean, the town is quite small, but I, I knew some people, you know, in Modena and, uh, Ironically, also my ex-race engineer from Toro Rosso, you know, Marco Matassa at that time, he, he lived in Modena, so hang around with him. I made a lot of good friends in Ferrari also, some race engineers, my simulator crew also. We, we had a few funny dinners sometimes, and uh, it was cool. In the end, then I, I tested uh, the, that year's car once in Fiorano, and that was very emotional for me because, you know, first of all, it's a Ferrari in Fiorano, current car. And uh, it was really cool. And I didn't drive uh, anything for six months or something. And uh, I was uh, enjoying it so much. And that day I understood uh, that I want to come back at any cost, you know, to Formula One because uh, this is what uh, I want to do. This is what I'm best at. And uh, also that test was very strong, the very consistent and good lap times. And everyone was uh, quite happy. Do you have a feel for the history of Formula One, Danny? When you were pulling out of the Shell garage at Fiorano and, and pulling out onto the, the hallowed tarmac, did it go through your mind that the Villeneuves, even the Ascaris and all these people had driven on that same bit of tarmac? Did it mean anything? Yeah, yeah, it did. Yeah, it did. Uh, I remember I was very nervous at the breakfast. Like I could manage to eat only like one croissant with some coffee and that's it. You know, I couldn't eat more. I just couldn't wait to get in the car. Uh, at that time and uh, i was quite nervous and uh, i thought okay just try not to spin on the outlap or something like that <laughs> because uh, i didn't drive the car for a while i was a bit worried but luckily i went on track and i just started to brake later and later and it was good what kind of a track is fear on i'm just how many corners is it it's it's a short lap isn't it it's quite short yeah but there are many kinds of corners you know a bit of medium speed high speed uh quite low speed so you got a bit of everything it's good enough definitely to to do a little test but you know of course it's not a spa franco champ yeah sure you say you really wanted to come back to racing particularly formula one but did you think about racing anything else did you look at IndyCar? Did you look at sports cars or Japan? Or I looked into it, but it wasn't uh, the thought about it wasn't making me excited. It wasn't making me happy. I felt like I have a lot of unfinished business in Formula One, and yeah, of course there was talks in different uh, also areas. But I always wanted to, you know only Formula One. Uh, I was even considering you know to stop completely if I don't uh, get a Formula One deal again. And was the option to stay at Ferrari for? 2019 uh yes yes for sure yeah because everyone was happy with my job but they also knew that uh, of course i won a race and they knew i'm more of a race material so actually they, they were trying to help me to find some deal also uh, not only in f1 also outside uh, everyone was very kind to me there also from the top management at that time everyone was very understanding everyone would uh, share a word with me always and uh, that was uh, actually yeah Good times, good times. But of course, then once you're looking for a seat, you become a bit nervous now. And when you feel like maybe you will never get to race again, then you become a bit nervous. Did you have much contact with Seb and Kimi? Yeah, I did. I did in uh, Canada. With Kimi, yeah, also a little bit. He is not uh, that much of a talk person, but many times when we, yeah, when we would cross, yeah, he would share some words with me because I know him. We have some 
uh, friend in common uh, from Finland. So we, we have something to talk about. And, uh, you know, Russia, Finland, uh, we're neighbors. So we understand each other a bit more. And with Seb, uh, yeah, also with him, yeah. It was great to know, you know, also to watch them work. Uh, two world champions, very experienced guys for me. It was good to see them work a bit from outside, learn a bit, uh, listen to them talking on the radio, listen to what are their preferences, who gets nervous uh, and why. So that's some things that I thought were not normal are actually normal. It was interesting to see that from outside also. It was a great experience. And there was Sebastian once, I think I was in Canada, and uh, I think what was my job there is to look on board videos and try to, you know, pinpoint what's different and like i said look i think you can take more chicane uh, more curb and that chicane and he agreed and he tried next day and it was uh, it was better uh, so he then said okay thank you it was good advice wow that's great story i hear a lot of people saying that seb has the most amazing work ethic in that he stays late he goes through every detail yeah very very hard worker. Yeah, I actually really learned to kind of, in a way, admire his work. I think he's uh, he's great. He's a very interesting person as well. And uh, works really hard, very dedicated, loves the sport very much, for sure. Very, was very interesting yeah, to look at him like this in that role. Yeah, I, I picked up a few things from him. So go on then. How did it happen? I remember seeing you in Sochi 2018 when you'd just been announced. And you had a re- you had a real spring in your step. It was wonderful to see. But I mean, was it literally just a phone call out of the blue from Helmet, or what happened? Yeah, um, we spoke. You know, I was speaking with people also, and um, I've been talking with uh, maybe in June. I made a few phone calls to different people, and I just said, "Look, if you ever come to to the point where you need a, a driver, uh, keep me in mind." And everyone said, "Okay, we will." Thanks for letting us know. And uh, sorry to interrupt, but was that just Helmet or was that other teams as well? No, other teams as well. Other teams. And, you know, we were maybe I was talking with other teams as well, but it was not it was not even like 50 percent. It was something like, yeah, maybe let's see here and there. And I was like feeling like, yeah, it's not going to become anything real, you know. But then, uh, you know, with Helmut is always uh, very direct. And uh, he just, uh, you know, called me when uh, all these things with uh Daniel leaving uh, Red Bull and so on started and then he called pretty much the next uh, couple of days and said look uh, let's have a meeting and we had meeting in Graz and uh, it was quite a long meeting and uh, to be honest we kind of uh, when uh, he called I knew that it's 99% done because he would never just call you know just to, to have a meeting and uh, we spoke some details in that meeting and uh, discussed uh, you know possible options and uh, requirements and uh, it was good. It was a good chat and I was uh, back. And that was during the summer break then of 2018? Yeah, that's correct. Oh gosh, you really did know quite a long time before we knew. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, still, you know, it's like we had meeting, but then there are a few other details to settle and so on. And then more of, a, you know, contractual things. And in terms of signed uh, contract wasn't too far away from the announcement, actually. Now, you know, I said, I think you've become a a better driver and you didn't disagree where do you think you've improved in the last 18 months you know it's hard to say exactly where but i think just was necessary to have a mental break mental charge because i had uh, everything in my career developed very fast a lot of things uh, happened very fast faster than i expected them to happen and uh, sometimes it's just nice to have a break and um, 
look at the whole situation a bit from outside. That's what was necessary for me uh, because I, I was a bit um, falling out of, of love with Formula One, with the sport in general, the end of my first you know, career. And then to regain the passion, to regain the love and fire for your sport uh, was very important. And now, you know, I have plenty. So it was very yeah meaningful year. I think that's that's the thing. And just to be able to uh, be a bit more mature, to judge the situations in a better way. And even if some, when something goes wrong, because sometimes it's unavoidable just to be able to get out of those situations in a better way uh, compared to how it used to be for me also was important. Do you think there is a chance of you ever getting back into Red Bull racing? You know, when we're giving our chat, everything in life is possible, absolutely. After what I've seen, you can never say no to anything anymore. Uh, of course, you know, now... What I also learned is that you, you don't want to be, you know, dwelling or dreaming about the thought all the time. It's just important to focus on your job that you've been assigned with. And uh, right now, what Red Bull has assigned me with is to, you know, deliver best results possible for Alpha Tauri. Uh, and uh, that's what I'm going to focus on. And this life shows, you know, everything is, uh, is open to you if uh, the results that you deliver are good enough. Nella, I wanted to ask you about some of your teammates. So let's start with your current teammate, Pierre Gasly. In fact, there's a lot of parallels between you and him, the sort of snakes and ladders of the Red Bull Young Driver program. How quick is Pierre? I think, uh, yeah, Pierre is, uh, is very quick for sure. I still didn't actually understand him very well as a driver. I still think that it will be interesting uh, because I still I haven't seen the full picture still. Uh, but uh, for sure... A uh, very quick uh, guy, especially on one lap, you know, very comfortable. And again, it depends a lot, no? Uh, what state you are, what you drive for. And he, yeah, he really showed uh, uh, great speed. And I always knew, and that's what I always heard of him, that uh, very fast guy, especially in qualifying. What do you mean by the full picture? You think you haven't seen the full picture yet? I just don't think uh, now to do a full year with someone is uh, a bit different. When you start from zero again, this year is not very full, but yeah, it, it doesn't really matter. He always uh, been fast. For sure, I expect him to stay very fast this year too, when we start again. I was just quite surprised uh, that he didn't manage to deliver the same performance in Red Bull Racing. This is what I mean maybe by full picture. I think it was a bit surprising for me. What, because you think he's got the talent, but just couldn't deliver in the pressured environment? Or It's hard to say. Like Again, I don't have full picture about him. I don't know him well. I don't know well how you know a person reacts in different situations. That's what I meant probably. For sure, everyone has talent and enough speed. Uh, most of the drivers in F1 have that deliver. And then, yeah, of course, the environments uh, are, every team is a very different world, you know, and it's hard to say. That's the only thing maybe uh, I didn't understand very well. It's better not to think too deep about this. I mean, Danny, you, you say every team is different. And is Red Bull Racing very different to Alpha Tauri? Because, you know, you, you share the same motorhome. I'm surprised to hear that. Well, it's different because it's, uh, you know, top team. It's uh, you fight normally for higher positions. That's what different. And also, yeah, uh, normally historically they've been faster car than uh, than our car. Also, it's a quite obvious statement, but uh, that's the way it is. In a way, it's same. In a way, it's different because in the end, what you have to do is just drive the car. So that doesn't change at all. Then the 
uh, environment around you is a bit different, yeah. Is it very different being in an English team versus an Italian team? I think it's different, yes. I think Italians and English uh, guys have a bit different mentality. It can work very well, I think, together if uh, if you make it work. Uh, but yeah, for sure, it's normal. Now that it's a bit different approach. Now English guys are a bit more precise, detail oriented, but uh, a bit more cold in the way of interacting. While you know, in the Italian team, there is a bit more of of heart, a bit more, a little bit more emotion involved, uh, a bit more home like atmosphere, in a way. But in the way, both ways can work very well, I think. So, what about Alex Albon? Uh, what about him? <laughs> <laughs> You've done half a year with him. You know he. The poor guy, I think, hadn't even sat in a Formula One car prior to pre-season testing. But I mean, um, did he impress you? Yeah, also of him, I don't have actually full picture because again, I did just have a year with him too. <laughs> but uh, I, I kind of enjoyed working with him, to be honest. Uh, quite an easygoing personality and uh, yeah, good. Uh, sometimes good jokes, sometimes not so good. <laughs> fast guy, for sure, very fast guy, everyone. But when you come, you know, in Formula One, you... You have this uh, rookie flow. Everything comes easy to you. I think uh, he's going to discover more and more of this world. And uh, but he also has uh, room, you know, because he's been a rookie last year. He has room to even improve more. So I think he he has a big potential for sure. Were you very frustrated that it was him and not you that got to replace Pierre Gasly in the team? Well, let's put it this way: I wasn't happy for sure. I cannot say that uh, when I heard the decision, I I fully understood it and I fully agreed with it. For sure, I was a bit like, uh, it doesn't sound right. But if you look at it, uh, in a way, it can make sense. I've been there already and uh, they need new new blood always. They need to promote young drivers. This is what uh, Red Bull does. No, it's uh, it's okay. In the end, after a few days after that, I, I took and accepted the decision fine for me. I know my job. I know my what I have to do what I was hired to do and that's what I'm going to do. So it's enough for me like that. And is Carlos Sainz, moving on to him, is he the guy on the grid that you know the best? He seemed to have done so much together on the way up, quite apart from sharing Toro Rosso together. Yeah, probably, yeah. In a way, yes. I think uh spent most of my career and uh, shared many teams with him. I also in junior categories, also in karting, we were uh, rivals. So it was... Uh, uh, maybe the, the guy I knew for, for I know for longest uh, for sure in F1 and yeah also very talented uh, guy also very fast I can say the same thing about uh, every teammate I had you know John Eric Verne Daniel Ricciardo yes yes exactly so they are all uh, all like that who was the quickest quickest uh, in qualifying uh, maybe maybe Ricciardo yeah I think well, at that time with that car with those tires, uh, he really found a good uh, balance of how to drive that. And uh, but it seems like also now uh, is very competitive. So I think he, he was a bit more impressive uh, in qualifying. But it was very good uh, benchmark for me. It was very good. And every time like uh, I beat him, I knew that, uh, okay, it was a, a really good day uh, for me. Is Dan a bit of a smiling assassin? Is that a... <laughs> Is that a decent way to describe him? I don't know. No, just uh, just smiling, really, and just a good driver. You know, nothing assassin about him. I think he he also made a lot of progress. You know, since he's in Formula One, I think uh, it's normal. You know, to improve since your first year in F1, and uh, he always managed to to improve, find a good uh, balance between qualifying and race. And uh, yeah, that's what uh, makes him quite a complete guy right now. Were you surprised? 
that Ricardo and Sainz left Red Bull of their own volition, of their own choice? Uh, it's hard to say. I think it's more complicated than that. You know, again, I don't want to dig into someone's uh, past stories. Uh, there must be reasons for that. There must be motives for that that uh, we don't fully know. And uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I'm surprised? Uh, maybe no, in a way. Mm. Well, can we just talk a little bit about your past? Because it's a fascinating story, Danny. First of all, do I pronounce your hometown, where you were born at least, Ufa? Is it Ufa? It's more or less that it's Ufa. Ufa. I mean, how does a kid born in Ufa ever want to become a racing driver? I've looked, you, you've got an ice hockey team, you've got netball, you've got all these things going on, but Formula One? Yeah, well, I mean, the story goes like this. It's... Uh... I moved to, uh, to Moscow with family uh, to study when I was uh, seven years old, more or less. And uh, there on the way back from school, every time we drove home, there was a karting, uh, rental karting center. And I was always curious to, to see what is that, you know, because I always wanted to drive the road car. Uh, like uh, sometimes I always ask my father, please let me drive the road car. I want to drive it. I want to drive it. And he said, look. Let's try this then. It looks like a little car, little cars. And uh, I tried that and um, it was immediately quite fast compared to people who were going there maybe already for many months. People who worked there, they said, look, you look quite uh, fast. So let's try to work on it. But I mean, was dad interested in cars? What was his job? What was it? Was he involved in any way in the motor industry? Or no, he didn't. I think even know what Formula One is. Uh, he has nothing to do with the cars whatsoever. Just had his uh, local business in Moscow, and uh, that's about it. So he didn't really know much about cars, uh, to be honest. So I just uh, just started by chance like this. Just no real background in there, like many other drivers. I know they start because it's, it runs in the family. In my case, it's really just. Uh, it just started like that. So tell me about this decision to move to Italy, because given that there's no history of car racing, it seems an even bigger step into the unknown than I originally thought. Well, yeah, of course, it was a huge step, you know, to basically immigrate into another country for a sport of racing. And uh, because once we, we, I was already doing some races in Italy and we could see that, uh, look, the competition level is uh, so much higher. And uh, there is 100 people a race, maybe there is 25, 30 in Russia. It was still a good championship. And I think now in Russia, the championship is much better than it was in the past back then. But at that point, you know, we, we were like, we need to move to Italy to drive on consistent uh, basis there in, uh, in Italy, in France, in Spain, you know, to become better and to be more uh, noticed also. Were you getting any advice from people within Russia at this time? Did Vitaly Petrov, was he helpful in any way? Or? No, I didn't know Vitaly at that time. He was still racing, I think, in Lada Championship uh, at that point. He also started late, you know, uh, and I only heard of him first time, actually, when he uh, was uh, winning some races in GP2. At that point, I only heard him about him. Uh, but at that point in Russia, really, who was helping me my first trainer pavel guskov he was uh there and he said look i also think that you overgrown a bit uh, here the level you need to try and win races in uh in uh in italy then it will really make you better so because there is history of people who tried to race in europe from russia but it never quite worked because they didn't live there and we said okay we take it to another level and we move there to italy full time and and 
rarely went back to Russia or did you commute a little bit? Uh, very rarely, to be honest, because the racing was uh, full on in Italy. You know, if you want, you can race almost every week of the, of the year. And I remember it was pretty much like this for me. If I wasn't racing, I was testing uh, with uh, different uh, cards, new tires, uh, testing, try to improve uh, my driving, uh, my team, my kart, and uh, a lot of races and different tracks, northern Italy, southern Italy. So we were driving all the time around the country with my father in the car, like sometimes nights through, like do the race, drive through the night, and next day already driving on some track in the morning. Actually, a really nice bonding time with dad, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I think so, yeah. <laughs> we spent a lot of time together, yeah, for sure. And uh, he drove uh, a lot of miles because of me. So you moved to Italy when you were eight, is that right? No, no, 11. 11, 11 okay. Years old. I started... Uh, nine years old in karting actually and then only one and a half year in russia and then then italy okay because i was going to say you know do you actually feel more italian or more russian you know still you know russia is a big part of me and uh, still it's the language that's original in me and uh, uh, maybe most thoughts they still come uh, there but i spent a lot of time in italy uh, since i'm young so i got a lot of uh, you know features from from italians i spent a lot of time with italian guys italian teams and uh, it was uh, it left a huge mark, uh, but uh, it's a huge part, you know, of my of my heart for sure. That country, I love both countries. So, can you just tell us a little bit about what it was like to spend the first eleven years of your life in Russia? I mean, what was it like in the in the late eighties? Uh, oh, sorry, in the in the what is it? The late eighties. Yeah, in the late nineties. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, before you were born, what was it like? No, um, what was it like in the late nineties, early two thousands? You know, it was Boris Yeltsin and then Putin, of course. Yeah, I can't remember that. You know, I was maybe I remember early two thousands. Um, how was it? I don't know. Uh, the country has been going through some changes. I think. I think now it's actually it grew quite a lot. It became always more and more modern. If you look at the country, always felt like it was a little bit behind uh, in the beginning of 2000s. But now, like technologically talking, but now it feels like it's more or less, it's uh, more advanced, like Moscow and St. Petersburg are the cities where people go comfortably as tourists. And was it sort of Larders, Trabants, Skodas everywhere? Can you remember any of that? Yeah, I remember. Yeah, many, many Ladas, many Ladas. And uh, now, yeah, not so many anymore, for sure. They looked a bit uh, out of date, but now there are new cars producing, luckily, so they look a bit better. You weren't tempted by the... Did you say that Petrov did the, the one-make Lada championship? You weren't... <laughs> a one-off appearance. I, I, want, <laughs> I don't want to lie about his fast, but uh, yeah, I think he did uh, Lada. So also quite impressive uh, career he had. He started in Lada championship without karting nothing, and, uh, and the guy made it to the podium in Formula 1, you know, so... Quite an impressive story too. I think you should talk with him next no, on your podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, because you were always on the road, quite literally with your dad, I guess there was quite a lot of homeschooling. Is that what happened? Yeah, there was. There was a lot. And he would always be angry with me. He said, look, you, you can't study for shit. Like just... His dad would say do that. This. Yeah, yeah. Just look, I let you do carding, but you need to, to study. So he would uh, examine me you know, on history on uh, maths and on uh, other things and he would say look it's lucky <laughs> you know how to drive the car <laughs> so but uh it was hard it was hard to study on the track sometimes because i just had no focus 
no spare brain to study. You know, I would be thinking always about this corner, that corner, what uh, setup we should go with, what tires we should go with. And that's what was on my mind. I was a lot more interested in, in what was happening on the track than, than in school. Uh, but I still managed to study quite a bit. Something stayed in my memory and, uh, yeah, it's challenging, but uh, you have to manage somehow. So where did your passion for classic literature come from? Because, I mean, I've spoken to you before about War and Peace, Tolstoy, but also Dr. Zhivago, Pasternak. There's all sorts of books that you've read. Is it true that you're now reading Marcus Aurelius? Yeah. Is this a passion that's come from your dad or where? Is it, or is it, is it, do a lot of Russians read classics? I read that somewhere. I, you know, I really don't know where it came from, to be honest. It's not like my parents are great readers. You know, they read something, but not much. And maybe they were just saying to me when I was young, look, you don't read enough. You need to read more, maybe. And maybe I said, okay, let me try. And I started to read something. And actually, I was like, okay, that's interesting, you know. And uh, I started to get uh, a bit more uh, hooked up on those kind of uh, classic stories. And uh, yeah, you know, luckily in Russia, we have great a lot of great writers. And uh, so I... I have a lot of choice from the classic literature. And uh, yeah, I read plenty of books. People maybe think that I read everything, but but I didn't. I read uh, the ones that you mentioned, but it's quite already heavy stories. So it's enough for now. Yeah, but how many Formula One drivers have read Tolstoy? I reckon you're the only one. I'm, I'm, I think I'm safe to say that. <laughs> we can challenge them to read it as well. <laughs> now, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Using that as a theme, my next question to you is, I've heard you say that training is like meditation for you. Is What do you mean by that? Well, in a way, yeah. It frees a bit your mind. It takes your maybe focus away from maybe if something hasn't been going the right way in your day. Uh, and uh, I prefer boxing, to be honest, uh, for that. If, you have, if you're having a shitty day and maybe you you're a bit thinking about problems too much and then I, I just go in the ring and uh, I, I do some pad work, some heavy back work and sometimes some sparring. Then it, it really takes away all the mental stress a bit for me personally and uh, I, I manage to disconnect from, from these problems. How long have you been boxing? You know, not much. Uh, started when I was 23 years old maybe. So maybe like started to do lessons uh, more or less consistently again with the schedule and everything is tough maybe last two and a half, three years, no more, but I really enjoyed it straight away. And also there, you know, I, I feel like I keep improving and it's important because when you keep improving, you're always, you're always curious to know, know how far you can go. And uh, of course, it's a very tough sport. It's, uh, if in F1, maybe yeah, you have mental pain, but add a, a very strong physical pain also to that. And it's, uh, you get boxing. <laughs> Has your upper body strength improved quite a lot since you've been doing it yeah yeah it did it did and luckily it's also a very good workout because it helps your body endurance in general your coordination this sport forces you to dig deeper you know uh into yourself when you're really tired uh and uh yeah of course upper body endurance for shoulders for example is also very related to our sport now so it helps it's pleasant and it's also useful do you think you'd ever get in the ring properly? Uh, yeah, maybe. I'm thinking about this for sure. For sure. We speak about this with my trainer a lot. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I once, uh, sometimes I was I was in the shape to do maybe 10 rounds, which is quite a lot, quite clean, but uh, it's not easy. And you need to keep training all the time there. You can't just, you know, do once a week and so on. It's, it's a hard work and it's a physical 
hard work, the training camps there are really something else, you know, something we don't know about in F1. It's a very tough physical sport like sprinting or marathons, something like that. But I'm now worrying for you because you're now, if you get in the ring, you're going to have to take a hit or two, aren't you? Well, you kind of, there is this possibility, but I'm not thinking about doing it now. I'm thinking about it in the very, very far away future. Uh, maybe maybe after F1. So uh, not now. No, no, of course, like you said, it's a very, it's too easy to get injury there, whatever it is, a wrist or take a, bad hit and uh, no of course i cannot risk uh, my f1 for, for that have you met any professional boxers yeah i met uh, last year canelo uh, canelo alvarez uh, oh, the mexican boxer. in monaco yeah yes he's now considered uh, one of the best if not the best you know right now and uh, it was cool for me because usually i never show to anyone whoever it is time on saturday before qualifying to show the boxes to show the steering wheel and the car when they told me that, that Canelo is, is here and he doesn't speak any English and so only Spanish and I speak luckily Spanish, I said, okay, let me do it. Like, um, I think I, I will really enjoy this. So I, I, I showed him around and uh, he's a very nice guy, also very humble, very easygoing. Uh, it was really cool. It was really cool. That's awesome. And talking of your training camps, better than a coronavirus camp that Helmut was talking about sending you guys on a few months back. <laughs> was that a real thing? No, I don't think so. I think sometimes, you know, unfortunately, words get a bit interpreted in the worst, in a bad way. And maybe they took this interview like a while ago. And maybe at that time, it wouldn't sound so strange. But at that time, when they published, maybe it sounded a little bit uh, different. I don't think he really meant that. No, I think he just wanted the best for us. He wanted us to train together, just not to get bored. That's maybe what he meant. But you should ask him. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, it's been wonderful to chat, Danny. I wanted to just end by asking you about your podiums. You've had three podiums. Uh, just to remind people listening, Hungary 2015, China 2016, and of course that amazing one last year in Germany. Which of those three is your favourite? Uh, yeah, you know, tough one in a way because first podium is always very memorable, no? but it was with Red Bull Racing. And uh, even though you were struggling with the car, at that point, uh, that podium meant a lot also for the team, also because Daniel finished third, so it was double podium for the team. Uh, everyone was quite happy that day, I remember, in Red Bull. We started to have some hope after that day, and uh, maybe 2016 podium. I was already very tense at that time. I was feeling that, you know, it's uh, there was not a good air around uh, me in Red Bull Racing, and even though I did the podium, I wasn't feeling very confident it would uh, change something. Uh, unfortunately and uh, of course then the podium in 2019 in Hockenheim with the Toro Rosso was uh, most special I think because it uh, feels like an achievement per se because to bring the team back to the podium the team that never had the podium for 11 years uh, it was something very special for me I really it was emotional emotional day already that uh, just uh, alone makes me feel proud it is fireworks and flames for Max Verstappen the winner German Grand Prix, Sebastian Vettel from 20th to 2nd. And keep the applause going for Danny Kvyat, a third podium in Formula 1. So each podium has its merit, but in which race do you think you drove best, each of those three? Uh, Hockenheim. So in Hockenheim, I was able to you know, keep the head cool in these difficult conditions uh, for the whole race. It was very challenging not to make any mistakes that day. It was very difficult conditions and to 
to make a right call to go on the slicks was crucial, you know. And usually in those kind of races until that year, I would be a bit lost. But that year, I managed to really keep my head uh, cool all the race, all the distance, and it, it really paid off massively. But to be honest, all of three podiums, I always felt like I could have driven better sometimes. Uh, so it's funny. It's funny feeling. You're like thinking you didn't drive maybe your best, but uh, you managed to still, you know, get a strong result. So you in 2015, you beat Daniel Ricciardo in Hungary and you still think you could have driven a better race? Yes, for sure. Yes, for sure. I remember I wasn't happy with myself, to be honest. I wasn't happy with uh, the way I uh, I drove in qualifying, I wasn't happy in the race with my tire management. Uh, safety car gave me a chance, you know, to restart the race, and I managed to make good overtakes and find the pace all of a sudden, and it was good. Uh, but if I had uh, done this race again, it uh, would have been another race. I think uh, even, you know, would have been able to challenge for more for a win. But overall, in 2015, are you satisfied with what you did? Because you outscored Daniel by three points. I was, uh, yeah, I was satisfied. I had the feeling it was a good year, but you know, I'm like this, I'm never really fully happy. I always think I could have done a better job in many occasions, in many places, in many qualities, in many uh, races. I always feel that maybe 2019, there was definitely more races where I felt, okay, you managed to achieve most out of yourself and out of the car than 2015. So I think if I had a chance again to go, you know, with top team, with top car, now, with, with the way I am, it would be another story. Do you think there is such a thing as a perfect lap? Yeah, you know, I'm trying now, like on the simulator, I do one lap and I think, okay, this was a perfect lap. Then I find another tenth the next day, then another half tenth the next day and so on. Hard to say, you know, we have this little window, you know, of perfect uh, grip conditions from the tires, of perfect wind, uh, perfect atmospheric pressure and stuff like that. And this window, you need to use it 200%. Or 99.9 and so on. It's very difficult. I think you just need to do a strong enough lap to what you have. Wow. Do you think fatherhood has in any way changed your approach, made you a better driver since the arrival of... In fact, it was Hockenheim, wasn't it? The arrival of your daughter. Has it changed your approach in any way? Um, yeah, it was also a special day because of that, of course. I wouldn't say it changed my approach on the track. No, I... Yeah, of course, realizing that you're a father and uh, that's maybe changes your mentality a bit. But once you're on the track, you keep working on your, you know, racing uh, racing driver uh, skills. So it's, it's, it doesn't really overlap your personal life and uh, what happens on the racetrack. But uh, yeah, in life, it, it did, yeah. And now that you're a dad, does it make you appreciate even more the sacrifices that your own mum and dad made for your career? Mo you know, moving to a different country to support your karting i mean it's an extraordinary thing really isn't it yeah of course yeah of course i will always uh you know be grateful to my parents for for what they did for me and uh how much they also sacrificed to move uh, with me my mom and dad uh to italy and uh, with me and uh start something completely new it's not easy also for me it wasn't easy to change the cultures so much one day you're in russia and then the next day you're between all the Italian people, and, and it's quite different, you know, uh, but uh, this whole journey has been quite cool. Do you think if you hadn't become a racing driver, you would have sought a life outside Russia anyway? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to say. I think I would always like to travel the world, but I don't know where my base you know, would be. You always find your your place of uh, where your heart, where your soul belongs, you know. Many people in, in the world, uh, sometimes they 
uh, move to another country because they feel like they want something new. You know, uh, it's normal. But in my case, it was more of a professional call. Uh, however, I don't know. It's too hard to say where I would be now. There is a, everything happens for a reason in the, in the end. Where do you think your soul belongs? <laughs> uh, Right now, uh, it's here in sunny Monaco. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Italy uh, maybe is the country where I, uh, where I would like to spend my most time. And yeah, in Italy, I really feel uh, happy. Brilliant. Well, look, we're hoping to go racing, what is it, beginning of July, isn't it? That's the aim yeah. in, uh, in Austria. Because of the lack of racing, it's a kind of weird driver market, isn't it? It's an odd driver market. When do decisions have to be made for next year, do you think? It's very... <sighs> Uh, difficult, uh, you know, call, especially now with this, uh, that we are all stopped, everything seems frozen. It's very hard to say what's really going to happen. We will speak more further on also with my manager, you know, Nicola. We will start talking soon. Whenever the time comes, it's still to, without racing, it would be with, with racing, sorry, it would be already a good point to start talking a bit about what might happen in the future, but without racing, really, our hands are tied. So we don't know who wants what and what the chances are. It's, it's, it's hard to say. And I think the same for the teams. Without racing, is way too hard to make any conclusions. Mm, I wonder. Maybe we'll see very few changes as a result. I was always told, if in doubt, do not. Maybe. <laughs> as in, if there's any doubt, do nothing. Maybe it would make sense because in the end, what, what has changed while we were not racing? Mm, exactly. Uh, not much. Quick word on this year's car, because of course we haven't been racing yet in 2020, but you did get out in it in pre-season testing. What was the, what do we call it? The AT01, don't we? What was it like? How did it handle? It uh, it was, you know, quite a good feeling straight away. You know, since we did the filming day, it went smooth. So we were excited to go to Barcelona. And even though regulations uh, technically are very, very similar to last year still, you always try to improve the car. You always try to put more downforce on it, uh, try to maximize the suspension stuff and so on. So all our engineers and chief engineers have been working hard all winter. And uh, in Barcelona, yeah, it was clear that, you know, car is similar in a way to last year, but also a bit different. So we had to figure out a bit the ways of how to find the right setup for it, what needs to be different compared to last year, like all these things, you know, in setup, uh, what what makes this car go fast that was our main topic and with more limited testing we try to do our best to you know, discover the car more it handles a bit different uh in some corner phases but not too much in a way so we still don't know exactly where we are and in the end what defines the fast car is how much downforce you have uh, overall and how much uh, horsepower in the end we have i thought it was interesting that carlos Sainz came out and said that he thought Alpha Tauri were one of McLaren's big challenges this year. Well, I think it's all remained quite tight in our group. I think it's very hard to say who got those two or three tenths, you know, spare to be in front. It looked like Racing Point, of course, seemed to have made a quite a decent step forward. But again, it's not fully clear because everyone still had small differences in program and the fuel and so on. So it's hard to say. But yeah, I'm sure. We can be close to, uh, like it was last year, was very close between all of us in the midfield. I think it will stay the same way. It will be very close. Uh, I just hope uh, we have enough. Uh, we are not favorites, I think, to fight for the best of the rest. Uh, but even if it's so, it's still important that we have a chance. 
Is there a different vibe around the team this year, given that you're now a, what are you? You're a clothing manufacturer, no longer a fizzy drink. Does it feel different in any way? Because the pre-season launch was incredible and great to see some razzmatazz back in Formula One launches. But does it feel the same as last year? It felt like a year ago already. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Honestly, yeah, I remember everyone being quite excited. You know, it's a new page in team's history. It's important step, of course. Toro Rosso was one thing. Then now we represent a brand uh, fully. So it's quite a different uh, kind of game now for the team. But in a way, yeah, it has changed from branding point of view, from presentation point of view of the team and so on. But technically, we're just an evolution from last year, from 2019. So in that respect, it's my job as a driver. Once I get to the track, it's just being aware of that. And all the engineers pretty much stay the same. And the driver lineup, the car is an evolution of last year. So we work on the, based on that. And then, of course, it's great to be part of a brand. Hey, Danny, thank you so much for your time. It's been brilliant to chat. Thank you, Tom. Thanks. Great chat. Ciao, ciao. He's so straightforward, isn't he? Danny doesn't shy away from any questions, he rationalises everything and moves on. In fact, it's easy to see why he understands Helmut Marco so well. They are in some ways quite similar characters. I love Danny's insights into Russia when he was growing up, as well as his impressive reading list and his utter dedication to achieving his goals in racing, even when there was no history of racing in his family, or let's face it, in his country. Danny's is an inspiring story. He's gracious in defeat and he's magnanimous when successful. And he's becoming increasingly popular in the pit lane. There was even a little cheer in the press room when he finished third at Hockenheim last year. Keep plugging away, Danny. And as you say, you never know what'll happen. Thanks for your time. It was great to chat. And thanks too to Alpha Tauri for teeing it up. Now, just before I leave you for another week, there's just time for the mailbag. I'm so pleased that so many of you enjoyed hearing from driver manager Julian Jacobi last week. His stories about Senna and Prost and everything else were priceless. Just finished the Julian Jacobi episode, says Jonathan Hodges on Twitter. He's very knowledgeable, worked with the best, and he's certainly the best sports agent in the business. Hard to disagree with a lot of what you just said there, Jonathan. I still can't get my head around how he managed Senna and Prost at the same time. Just incredible. Christian Rose also got in touch to say this. Of all 82 episodes, I reckon this has to be my favourite so far. Remarkable stories. Well, I love them all, Christian, like my children. But what Julian had to say was certainly fascinating. And one final thing before I go, I mentioned a new podcast last week and I want to give it a quick shout out again now. It's called F1 Nation and I present it with Alex Jakes. Lots of F1 chat and laughs and guests. And episode two lands on Friday the 8th of May. Available on all of your favourite podcast apps. Please let me know your thoughts. For now though, thanks for listening and please keep your feedback coming because we love it. I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter or use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next time, stay safe, keep washing those hands, and keep it flat out.